0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode 10. In this post-election episode, recorded on Monday, November 9th, I'm joined again by Professor Bradley Onishi of Straight White American Jesus to discuss the decisive electoral victory of President-Elect Joe Biden and Vice President-Elect Kamala Harris. We discuss the historical importance of Vice President-Elect Kamala Harris's election, the ramifications of 70 million people still casting their vote for President Trump, and where we go from here. I hope you enjoy this conversation as we try and make sense of a world where Biden and Harris clearly won. Yet Trump and the overwhelming majority of GOP leadership refuse to acknowledge it, all while the pandemic rages uncontrolled outside our doors. As always, there are a few ways you can help support the show. You can let others know about it, write and review it on Apple Podcasts, and support the show via a paid subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post. Other methods of support can also be found at exvangelicalpodcast.com slash support. All right, let's get right into it. everybody welcome back to powers and principalities this is the first of what may be a series of post-election episodes of this particular season and i want to welcome back to the show professor brad leonishi from the straight white american jesus podcast brad thanks for for joining me again
1: no thanks for having me blake always fun to talk especially uh in a week like this one
0: yeah so we are recording this on monday november 9th 2020 uh, we just lived through election week and there was a decisive electoral victory by President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And where I want to start off though, our conversation is actually just to hear from your perspective what it means to see Kamala Harris in particular achieve this accomplishment.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to understate how important that it is. I mean, I, it's one of those situations where lost in the... The Trump uh, meltdown about his loss, the refusal to accept the loss, the refusal to legitimate the election, all of that, all of that, Uh, in addition to the just days and days and days of uncertainty, all of us refreshing various websites, checking on Mm -hmm. Georgia and Arizona and, and Pennsylvania, so lost in just this myriad of controversies and stories and Rudy Giuliani showing up at a landscaping company and everything else is... The fact that Kamala Harris, first woman VP, okay, uh, that's big. It's huge. I mean, she's standing up there on the stage the other night, and uh, you know, uh, just just thinking about people like my nieces and watching little girls um, in the crowd and uh, seeing them reflected in her is is huge. And mm-hmm. we're just as a country behind on this front. Uh, other, you know, other countries, of course, have had female prime ministers. Presidents and so on and so forth. So this is a big stuff for our country. Uh, She's also a mixed race person. Nate Silver, who uh, you know got mixed reviews, I I think, over the last couple weeks from from various folks, did have a nice, insightful thing that he said the other day, which was, Democrats are three and zero in the twenty first century when they have a black person on the ticket, and Kamala Harris is a black person. Her dad uh, is from Jamaica, and. Uh, again, she's the first woman, first woman of color, right? Um, that's that's a big thing. It's a massive thing. Um, and so for um, once again, black Americans to have uh, someone who represents, you know their uh, their their story, their struggle, um, their heritage, their narrative, their experience in the White House, hard to understate that, right? She's also a South Asian woman. Um, I'm an Asian American, and just to have someone um, who, uh, you know, is from any part of Asia, Indian subcontinent, wherever it may be, is just—it's just a big step forward. Um, you know, I'll be honest, Blake. It's—it's it's easy, I think, for people to forget about Asian Americans as a minority in the sense that they're often dubbed the model minority. They're often seen as the quiet Americans, uh, the unassuming. Uh, neighbors across the street, um, and what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is that Asian Americans are your model minority as as long as you want them to be. And then when you perceive them to be a threat, they're a threat, and you'll unleash every vitriolic, xenophobic attack you can think of on them when you need to and when you want to. And so we've seen that. We've seen the president use various slurs uh, for the virus and and uh tracing it to uh to china we've seen attacks on asian americans go through the roof um these things are not lost on the very diverse and very heterogeneous asian american community and so to have kamala harris there the the daughter of uh an indian immigrant somebody you know who came to the country when she was 19 uh somebody who settled in oakland one of the most diverse and radical cities that we have in the country all of that is huge um her husband is jewish um so you know uh snl was making fun of this the other night but together they tick a lot of boxes um last thing i'll say here and and then i'll i'll um i'll turn it back over to you is just there's kind of two things at play here i i think in the ways i just outlined so many folks will be able to find themselves represented in kamala harris and even in even in doug Inhofe, her husband who's who's uh you know, as a Jewish person being in the white, uh, in, in uh, you know whatever he is, second gentleman, second, I, I don't know what he's supposed to be called, right. but the just that
0: second gentleman,
1: the first second gentleman is a Jewish gentleman. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's also a big deal. Okay. Um, so all that to say, I think many people are going to be able to locate themselves in, uh, in Kamala Harris and in Doug Imhoff in ways that they couldn't before. Um in another way, and this is uh, this is not at all meant to be controversial. I'm not uh, re, uh, truly uh, it's not meant to be a hot take. I'm not trying to to drive clicks. Um, as somebody who's a biracial person, I know how this works in the sense that sometimes when people can't reduce you to one thing, they um, they don't know what to do and then they sort of just uh, either ignore it or, or leave it alone or mischaracterize it, right? So one of the things I'm curious to watch is to see how the media and the American public reckons with just the stunning diversity in Kamala Harris and in her marriage. Like, we have, you know, uh, a Black a black American, an, a South Asian American, a Jewish American, we have the Jewish faith, we have, you know, Black Baptist heritage, we have... Uh, you know, Hindu uh, heritage. There's all sorts of things at play here, and mm-hmm. I really hope that we can bring to the fore all of those components and all of those aspects of of Kamala Harris, rather than uh, sort of just either getting bored and not doing any of it or emphasizing one to the detriment of the many. Um, uh, real quick, I'll just say you can see that if if Harris can find a signature issue and a signature sort of um, uh, public facing character uh, as she serves as vice president, you can see a very clear path forward to her as a presidential candidate. I mean, you, you can just see how she would break so many glass ceilings at once as a president. And if she can sort of earn the American uh, public's trust in that role, you, c- you can just see it, whether it's 24 or 28, um, it's just not hard to imagine this this going in that direction. Uh, so, anyway, those are some initial thoughts, um, and and you know we'll just have to see how it all plays out.
0: Yeah, that's that's all very well said, and I think you're absolutely right that the American populace as well as the American media, they are both reductive, and they and they seek to tell the simplest story. That doesn't work in in this sort of context, and it'll it'll be interesting to see the ways in which we as a people, and as well as people that generate media um whether that's podcasts like this or established media adapt to that sort of reality and the successes and very much more likely failures to accomplish that task. I'm curious what your take is really in what we've started to learn about how faith played a role in this particular election. A focus for both of us is white evangelicalism and White evangelicals seemed to vote the same as they did in 2016, by and large. We're still getting data. One piece of data that's surfaced within NPR, uh, and a recent NPR report was between 76 and 81% of white evangelicals continued their support for President Trump during the 2020 election. What other sort of patterns are you seeing begin to emerge? We can start with white evangelicalism, but then we can also branch out and see and discuss... Things like the religious left or other types of religious voters that were motivated to um, to either support Trump or defect, as it were, or, or vote. And so if they had voted for Trump in 2016 or uh, vocally supported Biden in this 2020
1: campaign. Sure. So if we, if we start with white evangelicals, I think... Uh, He may have gotten 81%. It it looks like it may be more in the high 70s, right? And so Mm -hmm. um, I I think this is both a big deal and not a big deal. It's a big deal because Trump needed every last one of those white evangelical votes to win. And in places like Michigan, in places like Georgia, uh, they were important. And for him to drop even a couple percentage points we knew was actually going to affect things. So from an electoral perspective, I actually do think it's somewhat significant especially when you add in the fact that f- from 4 years ago, the overall uh, percentage of white evangelicals in the country has gone down. So there's fewer of them and then you you peel off a couple of percent, electorally that's a problem for Trump. He was hoping for 82, 85, something like that, okay? So, symbolically We're still in a place where 77, 78% of white evangelicals voted for this man, even after four years of everything we saw, separating children at the border, forced hysterectomies, a Muslim ban, uh, you know, so so on and so forth, right? So on that Mm -hmm. front, not a big deal. I mean, this is not a a huge sea change. Um, A couple of other things, you know, I'm I'm working off some data from Ryan Burge, who's a a sociologist of religion, uh, and uh, it looks as if there were some, some significant, well, significant the wrong word, but some notable and uh, not-to-be-overlooked drops among white Catholics, and I think we expected this, some of us did at least, that uh, Biden's a Catholic, Biden's sort of running on this platform of decency and honesty and, and just sort of being a boy from Scranton was going to appeal to some white Catholics in uh, Erie County or in mm-hmm. Allegheny County, you know, near Pittsburgh, or, you know, wherever it may be. Um, I think we saw that. Okay, um, now uh, I just want to say, however, one one thing though, uh, talking about just white, relig- white Christian voters in general is, they still voted for Trump in big big numbers. I mean, even if yeah. you take the mainline, the mainline white Christian goes from like, according to Burge, fifty five percent to fifty one percent it's really easy to think of mainline white Christians as like social justice warriors. It's, it's just a really bad characterization. Uh, I'm sorry. We've got over half, uh, white mainliners voting for Trump. I mean, we need to get rid of the, the notion in our mind that if you're a part, if you're a white mainline Christian, that you are, um, somehow, what we would call progressive. Uh, it's just not true. And so, Mm -hmm. One of the takeaways, Blake, I have more to say here, but I'll throw it back to you after this is just white Christians are still voting for Trump in in either majorities or close to majorities. And, you know, we can talk about a lot of different stories from this election, but whiteness, whiteness was here and whiteness came out to the polls and uh, it came out to the polls, no matter if you were Catholic or or evangelical or mainline. I just think that's something we can't we can't let go of too quickly here.
0: Right. I fully agree just even sort of emotionally responding to the results beginning on Tuesday um, was seeing how close it seemed at first. And a lot, a lot of that came down to all of that election day voting and people continuing their patterns of, of voting for their party of preference, regardless of all evidence to everything that, that we know that the Trump administration has done. And I, I, fully agree that whiteness and the power of that sort of white, white supremacy and the unexamined whiteness that a lot of people operate within played a major factor. And that's why my initial reaction after, after Tuesday was, was that of being both hopeful and heartbroken. I will admit that I was more blindsided than I should have been in 2016 to the white evangelical support for Trump I had sort of hoped for better. I didn't expect any better this time, but it was still a disappointment. And I think that's just something that you just have to acknowledge, uh, as being someone that comes from a white evangelical perspective, uh, something that you have to grieve and acknowledge and not put that burden on anyone else. The, the burden, uh, of responsibility is to talk to our relatives and things like that, that, Still maintain these positions and continue breaking that whiteness down. <laughs> so, I'm I'm getting a little far afield now, but those were sort of my my initial reactions. What other? What I I fully agree with that. If you have any other comments about that, feel free to to jump in now or or bring or, uh, you know, move us to another topic relative to what we're seeing from this election.
1: Well, a couple. So if we if we think about the religious left. I think one of the things that happens on the religious left, especially the Christian religious left is so the religious left includes, you know, I I don't want to be, you know, Christian exclusive here. Right. Religious left includes many Jewish folks, um, you know, many Muslims, many Hindus, you know, many people in that under that category. But if we talk about the religious Christian left. okay, um, One of the issues that comes up that I think about a lot is diffusion that the religious left is often diffuse meaning that when they go to the polls, when they explain the issues that matter to them, when they, um, talk about who they're voting for and why the religious aspect is often diffused into all the other things for good reason. Okay. Racial justice, income inequality, poverty, healthcare, right. Uh, representation. Okay. All of these things. So it's sometimes we can sometimes get, uh, masked, we sometimes get a religious left that is masked, whether intentionally or not. So there's a way, Blake, that we could write the story of the 2020 election as the religious left cannot, the story of the religious left is a story of people of color. And the people of color who turned out for Biden is a story of the religious left. So let me give you some examples, shared these on Friday on our weekly roundup. Uh, Stacey Abrams, star of the show here, that you know, I'm sure everyone has has heard and talked about and knows what what happened there in Georgia. Raised by two Methodist ministers, says in in interviews that my faith is what infuses my politics. Okay, if that was Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, we'd all recognize her as a Christian candidate, Christian politician, Christian leader. But that's not how we. That's not what leads the story when you think of Stacey Abrams. It's, it's not a Christian candidate. It's a black woman for good mm-hmm. reason. We don't have any, you know, we don't have uh, enough. We have some, but we don't have enough black women, right, represented in this country. I mean, that, that goes without saying. So, of course, we're talking about Stacey Abrams as a black woman, but she's also a Christian. She's also part of the religious left. Cori Bush is going to represent Missouri in Congress. Corey Bush is a black woman. Cori Bush is a pastor, okay? Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that. We have two Senate runoffs. One of uh, in Georgia, one of the candidates there is Raphael Warnock, who took over the pulpit of uh, one Martin Luther King Jr. in in at Ebenezer Baptist in Georgia. Right? He is a. He went to Morehouse College. He got a PhD. Uh, lived in public housing as a kid. Had eleven brothers and sisters, and what became a minister. That's all the religious left. All of it, right? Right. Um, you know, I I just did an interview, and I'm going to post it tomorrow with uh, Dr. Robert Chow Romero, who's uh, you know, a pastor and a professor of Chicano, Chicana studies at UCLA. And he talks all about the Brown church. And when I think of what he shared with me in our interview, I think about Arizona and the Brown church turning out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about the religious left in that way too. And so all of that to say, there's a way that you could write the feature story at New York magazine or the New Yorker or wherever you wanted to write it about the religious left, uh, comes, it delivers for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because, you know, all of these, all of these stories we're hearing out of Georgia and uh, and other and other places. Oh, I mean, I don't want to leave out places like Detroit, places like Philly. Right? Um, we know that the folks who are organizing there, um, many of them are people of faith. Many of them are doing so within the community. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, within the Christian community, the faith community. So anyway, those are just those are some thoughts I think can get lost as we sort of try to dissect what happened in these various places and who showed up uh, for Biden and, 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 and how it happened.
0: Right. Those points can often get lost because we're working against 40 years of conditioning about the religious right. Uh, media conditioning, lots of different types of conditioning of just an expectation that... A religious candidate looks like a straight white guy who is Protestant and evangelical. That's why we see these these instances of charismatic churches praying towards voting, you know, where where poll workers are, are counting votes and Michelle Bachman today praying a, a prayer. Kenneth Copeland laughing that the media called called the election. Um all of these different things. But beneath all that are these things that multiple biases that we have to rid ourselves of, um, especially with white-dominant places and white-dominant media, is the active work of, as you said, communities led by black members of the faith and members of politics, as well as other non-white groups. Um, I know uh, this is a terrible segue. (laughs) I'm an associative thinker, and one of the things that, that became talked about a lot just during the period when a lot of anchors needed to fill time because these poll workers were still counting votes was in particular the latino community and how some of them supported trump more than expected supported trump and one of the things that came up that a lot of latinx commentators were saying is is that our community is not a singular community it's not a monolith that seems to be another another trend that that we're touching on here is things are more diffuse to use your your terminology and more complicated um, and not homogenous like honestly the republican evangelical alternative is
1: <laughs> yeah no that I, that I think that's exactly right so one of the things that i you know focus on a lot in these cases is viet, viet Tan to win you know the the writer uh vietnamese american Always talks about narrative lack and narrative saturation. So when your story mm. is represented in a way that is either sufficient or saturating, we we are going to attend to all the differences in your group because we see you so much. We see you so much that we're like, well, even though you're all uh, white dudes with uh, white hair or uh, yellow, <laughs> ha- you know, white dudes with white hair, and you're between you know five foot eight and six foot two. Uh, we're going to attend to every difference among you because we see you so much, your stories, your identities, right? So when it comes to white voters, we have the white rural voter. We have the white rural Midwestern voter. We have the white, you know, Southern voter. We have the, um, we have all kinds of different ways that we might talk about that. So then you get to, a, 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 what surprised some people on Tuesday night, which was, which was Florida goes very quickly to Trump and there's a lot more support among, uh, the Latino community in Miami-Dade County, especially in other places in Florida, I am not an expert on uh, Florida. I'm not an expert on um, you know Cuban immigration. I'm not an, so I'm I'm not going to speak here as somebody who uh, is a sort of scholarly voice on this. But what I what I do agree with wholeheartedly, Blake, is um, there is no uniformity. So when you use a category like Latino. Um, it, it's trying to capture a stunning set of differences under one rubric and to explain to you what, what everyone in that category is thinking doing voting in ways that are just cannot never avoid being reductive. They are always going to be reductive. And so uh, when you take the person who's from Florida, grows up in Miami, a very urban sort of dense city place, uh, their heritage is Cuban, and then you say, "Well, they're yeah. I mean, they're in the same category as the person who grew up in that you know Arizona or uh, New Mexico or California, and uh, they are uh, Mexican migrants, or they are refugees from a, a South American country that was um, marked by violence or by uh, other things." There's just no way that you can attend to the nuance there when you're just talking about Latino voters, okay? That's just, that's just really not gonna help. And so what I, would, what I would say is I look forward to the deep dive, right? I would, I'm happy to read the 5,000 words on what happened in Miami-Dade County. I, I wanna read that. I wanna know how faith played into that. I wanna know why so many folks went uh, for, uh, for Trump there. But I also wanna read the 5,000 words again about the brown church showing out for uh, Harris and Biden in Arizona or the indigenous communities showing out for Biden and Harris uh, in Arizona. I wanna read those too. And I want those to be something that we uh, attend to and pay attention to. Um, I think all of that's really, really important. And so anyway, uh, sorry for a long answer there, but I, I, I I just really can't hammer that point home enough that when you use Uh, even as an Asian-American, when you say Asian-American and you start trying to talk about the experiences of someone from Bangladesh, a Vietnamese refugee, um, you know, uh, 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 a fourth century Japanese-American whose family's from Hawaii, you just, (laughs) it's just, it gets to the point where the the differences are starting to outweigh the similarities and it's it's really hard. Those kinds of generalizations just end up being very unhelpful.
0: Right. There's so much to that, just of the relative, the general sort of laziness of of to try to find the common denominator while also ignoring distinct and important differences and the unique aspects of of life. And and I mean, that's obviously tied directly into whiteness and the history of so many negative shadows of American history and culture. That for the most part we. And uh, we being primarily white audiences think, and white people tend to ignore or try not to think about. This is, a, this is an issue that we still struggle with. To me, that might be the thing that, that we really come away from this election remembering is the Biden coalition was truly more of a coalition of a lot of people that had the Biden-Harris coalition, of a lot of different groups that had to unite in order to stand against a very homogenous ticket in Trump and Pence and what the current administration represents. I and so many other people would had hoped to see a stronger repudiation of this administration. But at least we know even more clearly than ever what we're working against.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I think, you know, one of the things I said the other day was just I think Tuesday felt bad because intellectually we'd all accepted that. It was going to be a long road. it was going to take four or five days or a week or or more. Mm-hmm. But we wanted that visceral condemnation on Tuesday. We wanted to see yeah. te- Texas flip. We wanted Florida to go blue. We wanted you know to see the Ohios flip and just think, okay, here we go. We got Ohio, we got Texas, we got Florida, and then we got the blue wall, and then boom, all of a sudden it's it's a four hundred. And something to 100 something electoral college and take that trump and here we are america we're proud right and we didn't get it blake and we know it we got 70 million people voting for donald trump after four years of what we saw um your show you, you know what you're doing here what i do on my show um in many ways unfortunately there's there's no shelf life because uh we just had 70 million people show out for white supremacy and that's just Mm -hmm. where we are. And, and even if, and and when we get to a Biden inauguration and presidency, I I really feel like we're in a situation, uh, that is, is comparable to right after the civil war and and reconstruction where, um, you know, (laughs) white Southern Christians still have not, many of them have still not accepted that they lost the civil war. So if you think they're going to accept that, that, Donald Trump lost uh, in a month or two. Uh, buckle up. That's all I have to say.
0: <laughs> That's a very good segue to where I, I want to go next and talk through with you, which is really Saturday was a jubilant day for people that wanted to see Biden and Harris victorious. And we saw that. And We saw the pictures. We may have even participated in some of the celebrations throughout the, throughout the world. I was lucky enough to be uh, in this neighborhood of Chicago on Saturday that's just known. I was, I was there in 2016. One of the good things that happened in 2016 was the Cubs won the World Series. And I drove through this neighborhood after the Cubs, Cubs won the World Series and there was honking and celebration. And there was even more of that on Saturday, <laughs> like in the middle of the day. And that was all just coincidence. But then you saw this celebration throughout the, the country And just taking a breath and and feeling that and acknowledging that. And then Sunday rolls around and Trump hasn't conceded. Uh, We're talking on Monday. And uh, over the weekend, Lindsey Graham is on TV trying to um, sow disinformation, challenge the results of the election. Court evangelicals, to use John Fee's term, um, are pushing misinformation campaign of, of voter fraud and people like Eric, Eric Metaxas are participating in that. And even today, Mitch McConnell refused to acknowledge in his remarks on the Senate floor that Joe Biden won the presidency. And it's really disconcerting given the major divide we have within our information ecosystems here in the, in this country. And, what that means to how we're able to move forward, uh, because the Biden campaign wants to move forward, they're trying to push this narrative of unity. And how can you unite with someone that won't even acknowledge that you won a fair game?
1: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, okay, so side Blake, just to do real quick, you and I uh, both know that if you want Jesus to forgive you you have to confess, and you have to repent. we know that we know that and that's right okay yeah, we, we absolutely. I mean, and a lot of folks listening know that okay mm-hmm. so when you want to just i know this is a tangent, but real quick, if you want to say, "Hey, let's forgive and forget, okay, not even Jesus forgives and forgets until you confess and change your ways, so uh you know if Jesus wouldn't do it, how do you expect us to think that that's how this works? It doesn't. It, you know, I, I once had a friend after a long prolonged, you know, sort of disagreement and conflict that threatened to end our friendship say, uh, after months of not speaking to me, you know what, let's just put it, let's just have this be water under the bridge and let's just move forward. And my response to that friend was, you can't have water under a bridge without a bridge there. That's not possible. And so if, if, Right. If people who support a fascist, people who support somebody who put, you know, put a Muslim ban in effect, separated kids at the border, so on and so forth, uh, just want to say, well, that's over now. Okay, let's just let's just go back to like kumbaya. That's not how it works. Anyway, uh, just a just a, a short side note there.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's not a side note. That's a main primary note. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: unfortunately.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true. People just want to move on. Even even people, you would expect this from Republican leadership, but Mitt Romney in a, in a Bloomberg article said that this election was a confirmation of conservative princi- principles, but a referendum on a person, which is mind-bogglingly convoluted to say that your side lost by millions of votes. <laughs> and it's not that. It's just clearly not.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I want to go to what you said there about like Metaxas and McConnell basically saying the same thing, right? So what we have here, Blake, is we have Republican leadership, McConnell, Lindsey Graham, uh, and others saying we don't recognize Joe Biden as the president-elect. It's crazily dangerous. We have mm-hmm. the two Republicans who are in the runoff for Senate calling for the resignation of the Republican AG in Georgia uh, because of whatever they think that the uh, Attorney General did to quote unquote, mishandle the election. Okay, What we also have though, as you mentioned, is people like Eric Metaxas uh, and the court evangelicals, basically either word for word agreeing with them or leading the charge in resisting uh, the election results. And I, I here here's just one thing I want to point out about that is, it has not always been this way. That what we see right now is the Venn diagram of of white evangelical and and Christian nationalist overlapping with Republican. There's no Venn diagram; it's just a circle, right? The the two have become right. just and they're they've enveloped into one circle. They've been subsumed into each other. Okay, mm-hmm. it has not been that way forever. Like it, you could even in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it did not work that way. There was a difference. There was a separation. Okay. And what we've seen is just this full on um, marriage of the white evangelicalism to um, the GOP. And they just keep pushing each other to further extremes, right? Like, I, if you ask me, why is McConnell doing that, Blake? I really think it's because he thinks the only way to get the base out in Georgia to win the Senate is by Trumpism. So he's like, all right, if I, if I concede that Biden won on the, ele- on the Senate floor right now, we probably don't get what we need to come out on January five to elect these two senators. So you know what? I'm willing to put our democracy on unsure footing. I'm willing to weaken our democratic institutions because I think from a messaging standpoint, if we don't concede, then a lot of angry people will go to the polls in Georgia on January five to put in our two Republican senators. Whereas if I take a sort of normal and uh, honorable approach, to electoral politics and democracy, I may not get the kind of energy I need from our base in Georgia to win those elections. So let's do it. I'm gonna just throw everything into question and Trump may or may not be president January 20th, but, uh, and I'm speaking McConnell, not, not as me, but you know what, I don't care. I'm gonna keep with the Trumpism. The Trumpism staying. I'm gonna, the tactics, the disinformation, the inability to provide evidence for your claims when asked, all of that's going to stay, even if and when Trump is gone. And to me, that's the thing we, we cannot forget. Like Saturday was so jubilant and it was so amazing. But anyone, you know, who, <clears throat> excuse me, who's had a, a cancer diagnosis knows that you win one battle and you got to be vigilant in the next moment. Right. And I'm not saying this to be blase in any way about cancer. What I'm saying is if you take that metaphor and apply it to Trump and Trumpism, Trump is the malignant narcissist that we have to jettison from our public sphere. That is completely true. But then you always have to be on the on the lookout, right, for more cancerous cells. And I think McConnell, I think Graham, I think Georgia uh, Republicans are showing us how that's just going to be a constant vigil for the next however many years. And you think I'm crazy. Well, look at Italy. Berlusconi came back how many times? Look... Look at Israel. Netanyahu came back. How many times? How many times? Like, do you remember learning about Napoleon when you were like in eighth grade? And you're like, holy moly! How many times did Napoleon? <laughs> Here's my point: these guys just don't go away. They're going to hang around as long as they can and haunt yeah. your democracy. So that's where we are now. If you ask me,
0: I would be very hard pressed to disagree with you because, because of the actions of of the Senate leadership and others, at last count. Earlier today, there were only three GOP senators that acknowledged the results of the election. And it's just astonishing. So today I listened to a podcast that Kirk Cameron and Eric Metaxas recorded the day after the 2016 election. And there was no mention about waiting for the states to ratify the election. There was no mention of, of uh, voter fraud, which is just Incredible that they've weaponized. They've found another way in which to weaponize the pandemic, and use the reality of people voting by mail in order to not expose themselves to a deadly vi- to a deadly pandemic. That they're using that to sow fear, uncertainty, and doubt um, about the results of the election, and that. They've been priming their audience for decades to just be skeptical without, and they've also found a way to d- divorce skepticism from evidence in a way that is exceedingly troublesome. And they, they, all of it, as you said, Christian nationalism or republicanism, white evangelicalism, it's a circle. And so, one aspect. Of one affects them all. <laughs> it's literally the QAnon reference. It's literally where, <laughs> where we go one, we go all. That's literally what's happening right now in the Republican Party and in white evangelicalism, and it is absolutely wild. Uh, I don't have any way to tie up what I'm saying right now, just because it's it's hard to even fathom that this is the Republican Party that currently has control of our government and refuses to bend the knee in any way whatsoever to the will of the people, which they are supposed to be serving.
1: Yeah. I have just two quick responses that, that I, I, cause I agree with everything you said. And I think two things, one, Blake, we grew up in an evangelicalism that, especially prior to George W. Bush would just, Repeat this line all over, right? That it's not about earthly power. That earthly power is not our goal. You know that. Yes, we want to influence the world and politics. Yes, but you know, in in mm-hmm. my in my church and in my culture, I heard a lot about how. Look, it doesn't matter um, whether or not you know there's complete control of the U.S. government by uh, Christians or or whoever. That God's work is going to continue no matter what. Okay, so don't get me wrong. Was right. there like incredible fights to get Ronald Reagan elected and and to to combat Bill Clinton, you know, and get him out of office when the Monica Lewinsky stuff happened? Sure. Okay, but there was not a like full on do or die investment in political power like there is now. I mean, it. You know, I've checked in on people on Facebook uh, from those days and and my evangelical circles, and for them, this election is. Just it's do or die like if trump really does in their mind lose and he has lost don't get me wrong I know that but in their mind if he really does lose They're just not sure what's going to happen They think it's just like that that just literally cannot be true because god does not want that And that segues into a, a different thought, which is okay Well, how about you brad? Why don't you go back to how you reacted when trump won in 2016 why did you get to be all up in arms and you are you you won't accept that they are up in arms in this similar way? And here's my response. We had evidence in 2016 that there was interference in our election. So you say, hey, why were you dismayed? Part of it was because I knew what was coming in Trump. I knew what was coming in his approach to governing. I also had evidence about Russian interference. And since then, every intelligence agency in this country has verified that the Russians did interfere in our election, right? So if we go down every avenue on the interference in the election category, we see that there's deep concern there about, okay, were th- was there access to voting machines? How did disinformation sweep in? What happened with Jim Comey and the FBI stuff, blah, 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 right? There's actual documented evidential reasons to have that like existential concern for our democracy. And then you, you turn around and you say to Rudy Giuliani or your high school bro on Facebook or a state legislator in uh, Arkansas, well, why are you so dismayed by what happened here? And they say, well, I've heard about irregularities. Well, I've heard about a poll worker who did this, this and this. Okay, I just want the evidence. Can you show me the evidence? well, I heard this from a friend and I think we all know mail-in voting and how did all this stuff happen? No, I just want evidence. Can you give me the evidence? No. And then at this point, you're just typing the like, you know, the hand clap emoji, like evidence E hand clap B (laughs) just want just give me the evidence and we'll talk. (laughs) Guess what? No Giuliani, no Leffler, no Purdue, no McConnell, no Graham. Nobody has any evidence. And that's why even Fox News today cut away from Kaylee McEnany when she was peddling these conspiracies because she, Neil Cavuto is just like we have no evidence, we can't allow her to say this. I'm sorry. Anyway, to right. me, to me, Blake, that's that's those are the two things that stick out in response to your your comments.
0: Right. Speaking in in regards to the the Cavuto cutting away, I, I saw that just prior to us starting to record as well. And what what I thought really was that. I am somewhat worried just because within conservative media, I mean, I grew up in a a family that watched a lot of conservative media, a lot of Rush Limbaugh, things like that. The evolution of conservative media, cooler heads, more reasonable heads don't really prevail there. And that's what worries me is that that is the trend towards further radicalization towards further belief just unquestionable faith in their particular party and i can't think of another word to describe it than that than like just like straight up like blind faith (laughs) that to deny the evidence of your eyes and everything else and believe that your your political enemy is so vile that they could do anything and that's that's my worry at this point is that McConnell and others are are pushing this and, I mean, they're happy because they're on their side. I'm just not, not sure where this leads and it's sort of a difficult place to be to know that that is the reality of those media ecosystems and those communities to think so little of their political opponents that they believe they're enemies. And that's why biden i think has tried to lean on this sense of unity and it's something that we need in order to overcome the biological threat of this pandemic uh, and the democratic threat of christian nationalism Um, but i just circle back to this concern over people not being willing participants in either and i'm not sure i'm not sure what the path forward is for us uh
1: I'm not either. I, you know, it's 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 interesting. I, I I think I've seen you posting on Twitter about how your next sort of direction for this show is to to examine media, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's incredibly poignant because one of the things we really need to understand more clearly is how these media networks just are ubiquitous. If you didn't grow up in a house like that, like you 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 talked about Rush Limbaugh and, and all the other various uh, parts of that ecosystem, Blake, if you didn't grow up in that, it's hard to understand how it surrounds you, like it, how it just, right. it, it filters in every space that you're in. It's the air you breathe and to, to get outside of that and to talk about getting outside of it is, is to have everyone in your family and community look at you as if you've lost your mind, right? That you would, <laughs> you know, yeah. when I, when, when I was a teenager and and you, 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 if you mentioned CNN, all the first thing someone said to you was, "Well, if you want to watch the Communist News Network, go ahead." Um, but I'm not mm-hmm. gonna I'm not gonna do that, right? And uh, you think about that now, and, and CNN is so middle of the road and so just blah in terms of its um, leanings that uh, that's the kind of environment we have. So you're gonna go toward media, and I think what I've decided over the last day or two is. I'm going to do a deep dive into Reconstruction and the period after the Civil War, just to try to show folks historically uh, a period when we were this divided as a country, and what happened when we left those perpetrators of divisiveness and violence off the hook. Because I feel like that's going to be the temptation um, to these these very banal calls for unity that have uh, no effect except to uh, allow those who have waged war on democracy to continue to roam free so anyway uh, i feel like that's you know i i i'm excited to see what you do with media and i'm really excited for myself to jump into um, some episodes on reconstruction and religion and lost cause theology just to sort of show folks how we uh, have done this before and maybe that will help us uh, think about uh, ways to move forward so uh, anyway both those seem important to me
0: yeah i mean that line about hope and history rhyming yeah, uh, I guess the inverse is true, too, as well. And shitty things <laughs> in history <laughs> 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 rhyme, too. And uh, uh, yeah, that'll be an incredibly valuable and really insightful thing to explore, that period of history and, and how people tried to rush towards reconciliation. And so many people, so many black commentators, so many other I, I never say this out loud, BIPOC, black, indigenous, people of color, um, are making comments, are bringing that to the fore, is that reconciliation without justice is not real.
1: Um, so It's amoral. So, yeah. it's, it, it's, not, it's not moral.
0: Yeah. For that to be a focus in the coming weeks and months and the ensuing Biden administration, Biden-Harris administration, um, I hope will not be lost. Um, as, as they tried to move forward and just as Obama inherited a terrible economic mess from a Republican president, Biden is inheriting a terrible biological life-threatening mess from Trump. And so, uh, that will absolutely skew his presidency despite all of these things, despite all of these concerns, we did have a moment of jubilation on Saturday what are you looking forward to just in a, in a sort of clear eyed way uh, about the potential future here and for our country and for the ways in which we can provide context for people uh, about the, the things that, that we face.
1: You you know um, I, I know we've all dealt with this in, in big and, and small ways. Right. But you ever have a time when you feel like, you know, life is, is going along. Okay. I I'm, you know, whatever it is, family, home life, work, uh, friends, uh, hobbies, whatever it is about your life. You're like, that's, that's pretty good. And then, and then maybe something happens, you get sick and and let's just call it a, uh, let's call it a small sickness. Okay. Let's say you have, let's say you have the stomach flu for, for, for five days, Blake, and, and mm-hmm. you're just, you're just at home and everything's, we all know the stomach flu is miserable. If you eat, uh, things don't go well. And so you don't eat, but then and you lose 10 pounds and you're just in bed and it's just awful. Right. And um you just all you know all you wish for when you're in that kind of sickness not even talking about life-threatening tragic disease sort of sicknesses even just that terrible stomach flu uh you know can't keep any food down stuck in bed for 72 hours straight uh pounding headache fever kind of sickness you know what you long for you just long for getting back to square one right it's not even like you're thinking It's not even like you have this sense of like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to improve every aspect of my life. I'm going I'm to eat better, go to the gym, be a better spouse, uh, finally go to therapy, maybe read those books I've been putting off and uh, call my parents more. Like you're not even thinking about being your optimal self at that point. You're, like, you're just thinking, I just wish things would go back to normal. And once they're back to normal, I'll be able then to sort of stop, breathe, and then move forward. That's to me what Saturday was. It was this relief that we now will rejoin the World Health Organization. We'll we'll be part of the Paris Agreement. That we'll have normal relations with our allies in you know Western Europe and East Asia and other parts of the country or or the world. Um, You know, to me, you know, Blake, I'll just say like I said this on I think last time I was on your show when when Obama was elected, it felt like we were going from square one to like an unimagined future of Who knew we could progress to this level? And I cried my eyes out that night. On Saturday, I cried all day. And it was mainly just from happiness, seeing people dancing, seeing different videos of folks celebrating, champagne bottles, everything else. But it was like after you're sick and you go back to normal life and it just feels so good. You wake up on that Monday and you actually go to work. You know, you actually eat your lunch and talk to your friends and and come home and, and and you feel fine. You ever had that feeling after being sick? It's just like you're like so thankful that life is just normal again. That's where we are now. So if you want me to be clear-eyed, I can already feel my blood pressure boiling about who Biden might pick for his cabinet. And I'm already like worried <laughs> yeah. that the Democrats are sidelining people like AOC and the progressives. And I don't want to hear about J- John Kasich. Okay. I just don't, I don't want to hear about, so I can already hear my and feel myself getting stressed and and anxious about those things. But in a clear eyed way, I'm just glad that we're back to square one. Yes. Paris agreement, world health organization, Biden just released the people who are going to help him advise for COVID. Oh, look, no family members, no quack doctors, no, (laughs) no, my pillow guy. Oh, look at this. It's a, it's a tool and other PhDs and doctors and, and, you know, world-renowned mm-hmm. physicians sounds great. That's what you would expect, right? And so that's what right. I'm looking forward to more than anything.
0: Yeah, that's a great note to end on.
1: I think because that uh,
0: getting back to normal and being able to address the things that that need to be addressed is just going to be so valuable and so meaningful. And I think a lot of people feel as if we barely had a government, and uh, it's it's hard to deny that um, reality. So. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining me and just trying to put some context to what we've seen, and really just uh, try to—I don't know—like, yes, take that breath, uh, but also realize how much how much work is ahead. Like so many things that we have to hold at once, uh, and maybe that's just the postmodern or post-post or post-post-postmodern or whatever, wherever we are, reality. Uh, is that we just have to accept that this is a good thing and there's also a whole bunch of bad things and lots more work to do. And I'm I'm glad that there are people like you who are giving context to these things and willing to talk to me about this stuff and frame it in a way that I, that I hope is helpful for people. So thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you online and where can they find... Uh, your podcast and anything else you're up to
1: yeah no thanks for having me blake it's always great to talk and and i just it's it's ditto for you in terms of your work and and everything you're doing and uh so thankful for that and um i'm I'm on twitter at bradley onishi uh my my podcast is straight white american jesus uh that's at straight white jc on twitter uh we have a whole, if you want to know about how the Venn diagram became a circle in terms of uh, the religious right and the GOP, we have a whole series called The Orange Wave and it's 10 parts. It starts in basically 1960 and it, it covers everything from masculinity to white supremacy, uh, electoral politics, um, uh, homeschooling, everything everything you can think of. So um, check that out at straightwhiteamericanjesus.com and, um, and that's about it. So thanks again, Blake, for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, that'll do it for this week. I'll have at least one more episode to round out this season, but recording times have had to be shuffled around some, so don't be surprised if there's a one-week delay or so. As always, this episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. The theme music is by Dave LaFever and Jake Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. All right, talk to you soon.